0: Romans chapter 5. I can't believe these meetings are almost over. I say you're having time passes, pass. It's having a good time. I guess we're having a ball, huh? Yeah. It's like oh, all right, Romans chapter 5. And I want to go back and biblically and, 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 uh, do what we used to do in biology class. We'd take a frog or some... Like that, and we would dissect it. I did not like biology class. I didn't like, like having to pit frogs. If you don't know what that is, you can look it up. I didn't like having to get these bags of formaldehyde filled animals and cut and them kind of open and just stink. But then I hear that's what surgery is like anyway. So I was glad when I got done with biology. Music theory, freshman theory, was a whole lot more fun than biology. <laughs> Well, I want to take a verse here that's very familiar to us, and I want to sort of, in a sense, dissect it tonight, and take it apart and look at it phrase by phrase. Our text is found in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, where Paul writes, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, <clears throat> and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. I want you to notice, first of all, the reason for sin, as by one man. I know sometimes it may seem difficult to believe that one man is responsible for all that's wrong with the world today. By the way, God isn't that one man. God sure gets blamed for it a lot, but does it? You've heard people say, well, if God's a God of love, why is there so much evil in the world? My reaction is... You're blaming God for the for the wickedness that man has done? Now let's, let's begin to look inward. Yes, it was by one man. In Isaiah 53 and verse 6, the Bible says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Man's, man's determinate will is to do his own thing. Isn't that what happened in, the, in heaven, being? When Satan found, I will be like the Most High, all the I wills, the determination of Satan to be, <clears throat> be that which he was not, well, man, man determined that he was going to do things his own way. And we find that down in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden. God threw only one restriction, only one rule, only one law. And Adam and Eve knew, and by the way, I've heard some people say, well, when Eve said, neither shall ye touch it, she was adding to the Word of God. Not so. I believe that Eve understood what God said, uh, thou shalt not touch." Thou shalt not eat of that tree. I believe she understood that to mean, stay away from the tree, don't even touch it. Otherwise, she, she'd have been lying, and, and, and that would have been the first sin. And so the, the devil came along and said, why, right. he questions the authority of God. Yea, hath God said? What right does God have to tell us what to do? Folks, that's an attitude of man today, here in America, is it not? I actually saw a guy with a poster that said, if, if Jesus comes back again, we'll kill him again. I thought, my goodness, have you no fear of God before your eyes? Obviously not. And so the Bible says there's a way that seems right unto a man, the end of the ways of death. Satan questioned the authority of God, and then he questioned the integrity of God. And he said, Why? God said, God's not telling you the truth. God said, Eve said, God said, We're going to die the day we eat of it. And Satan says, Why? God's a liar. God, God knows you're not going to die. But God doesn't want you to eat because He doesn't want you to know as He knows. He doesn't want you to have the same knowledge that He has. He's hiding things from you that you need to know. Listen, folks, there are some things in this world I don't need to know. I heard one, one preacher say one time he was... Reading pornography <clears throat> because it's, I need to know what my young people are looking at. Well, first of all, you don't need to know that, and hopefully, your young people, if they've got proper spiritual guidance, are not into that garbage. There are some things you and I don't need to know. Um, but anyway, uh, Adam and Eve, particularly Eve in this first part of this thing, uh, she believed it. And she saw that it was pleasant to the eyes, the lust of the eyes. It was, it was going to make her wise, the pride of life, good for food, the loss of the flesh. And she took of the fruit, she disobeyed God, she gave to Adam. His eyes were totally open when he did what he did. And he took it and ate, and their eyes were both opened, and they knew that they were naked and shame, and ran to hide from God. Satan has controlled mankind with the wrath, the children of wrath, and the children of disobedience, even as others in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. So the reason for sin is one man's determination to do what he wanted to do rather than what God. Which leads me to the second point. And that is the reality of sin. We notice that the the, the reason for sin has by one man sin entered into the world. Notice the reality of sin. Sin enters into... What is sin? Can I say this, folks? Sin is sin because God says it is. Adultery is sin because God said so. Stealing is sin because God said so. Alright? Sin is sin simply because God said it was. We're, we're to avoid those certain things. Now, what is the, the, the word sin? Okay, what, what's your name? The youngest one? What is it? Colton. Colton? and you're in 5th grade, so you're, what, about uh, 10? How do you spell the letter, the word sin? S-I-N. What do you can spell How about your brother? What's the middle letter of the word sin? What is I, folks? Did you ever think about it? I is not only a letter of the alphabet, it is a personal pronoun. And I want you to think about it this way. The heart of sin is an eye problem. The heart of sin is an eye problem. Now, now in Spanish, this doesn't work. (laughs) We were watching a Spanish to English video this evening, and it really kind of hilarious. But in Spanish, the word for sin is pecado, So you can't do this. So when I'm speaking in a a, a Spanish country, I I go ahead and give the illustration. Now, folks, in, in your language, this doesn't work. But in English, this is how you spell it and explain it. And they still get the impact of the message. The heart of sin is an eye problem, doing what I want to do instead of what God wants me to do. Or on the other flip side, not doing what God does want me to do. To him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, the Bible is very clear to him, it is sin. Sin is doing what I want rather than what God wants. In essence, though we don't have a record of this actual wording, by their actions, they said, well, we know what God said, but... Folks, can I tell you, if you know what God says, there are no buts. Uh, well, I, I know what God says, but I don't like what God says. I don't care if you like, don't like what God says or not. Your, your duty is still to do it. Amen? Whether we like it, whether we understand it or not, we're to, we're to do it because God says we're to do it. And so people say, well, Adam said in essence, well, I know what God said, but I want it. You know, the first two words a child learns, I think, and this may be internationally, the first one is no, and the second one is, second one is mine. Right? All about me. Kids do not naturally want to share what they have with others. Why? That's mine. I remember when my grandson was little. Um, we go. I'd, I'd be playing with a toy. He said, "Grandpa, that, that's mine." I said, "That's what I said, son. It's mine." No, it's mine. I said, "That's what I said. It's mine." And we go back and forth. And finally, one day, he says, "No, Grandpa, that's Samuel's." <laughs> he, he, finally, he finally figured it out. <clears throat> but they said, "We know what God said, but we're going to do what we want to do anyway," and they did. And the world today is paying the price for that single act of disobedience and rebellion. My friend, if we know what God says, our responsibility is to submit to that word, that will, and to do it. So sin is doing what I want rather than what God wants. So we have the reason for sin, as by one man, the reality of sin, sin entered into the world. Not the universe, per se, but the world, although the universe has also been affected by sin as well. Notice, if you will, please, the result of sin. And death by sin, or death as a result of sin. <clears throat> now, there are two, two things here we think about. <clears throat> Number one is the cosmic curse on creation. That is why everything dies. Animals die, trees die, people die. Uh, everything that has life eventually dies God not only cursed Adam and Eve he cursed the ground he cursed the earth Uh, before that there were no stickers or thorns or briars have you ever wondered what it was like when the Bible says God planted this beautiful garden and put man there to take care of it to till it have you ever wondered what was involved in taking care of the garden for example did he have to cut the grass if he did what did he do to the clippings Uh, And if he did, it wasn't sweaty work. If he had a rose garden, he didn't have to worry about wearing gloves to, to protect from all the thorns and the stickers and the briars and stuff like that. There was nothing difficult. Whatever work was involved in caring for the garden was simply sheer pleasure. There was no sweat. There were no aching muscles. There were no falling arches. There were no swelling of legs. There was no failing of eyesight. So they sinned. And everything changed. Remember that death is simply separation. Physical death, the separation of the body from the soul. Spiritual death, the separation of the soul from God. And so Adam and Eve, uh, contrary to some, said, Well, he didn't die in 930 years yet. He lived physically for 930 years, but he was dead spiritually the instant he disobeyed God. And the very moment that he died spiritually, his body began to break down and deteriorate, and cells began to die. It just took him 930 years to get the job of dying done. We're a lot more efficient. We generally get our dying done in less than 100 years. And then there's the act of the idea of the result of sin as death as a condemnation for that sin. For example, in Ephesians 2, and you have the quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Ezekiel 18.4, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. By the way, wages is what you get for what you do, not for what you are. And I believe that the death, the gift of God's eternal—the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God's eternal life. I believe death there is not primarily spiritual death, but primarily physical death. But understand, folks, physical death is a terror for those who are not saved. Their actual process of physically dying is a part of the judgment of God for their life of sin. Now, to die physically without the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ means that you also experience spiritual death, eternal separation from God. So one results from the other. So death passed upon all men. Notice the reach of sin, because all have sinned. Death passed upon... Wherefore is what? By one man's sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon... All men, yeah. all beings, all human beings, no exceptions, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Uh, Psalm 14, there's none that doeth good. And, and, well, that's a problem. That's, that's Proverbs. Uh, Psalm 14, where... Uh, help me out, Pastor. Psalm 14, verse 1. They're, the fool said in his heart, there's none righteous, no, not, there's none that seeketh after God. They're all going out of the way, Isaiah says, and becomes an unclean thing. And so we have all beings, all, all of mankind is under this <coughs> curse of sin. But I'll take a step further. All of man's being is depraved. In other words, it's just not a part of you and me that's under the condemnation of sin and the reach of sin. It's every part of us. Uh, some people will talk about the Calvinistic doctrine of total depravity. I'm not going to refer to it as Calvinism, but I believe in the doctrine of total depravity. For example, Ephesians two three, And you had the women who were dead in trespasses and sins. But turn over to Titus. Don't lose your place here. Titus chapter 1 and verses 15 and 16. In Titus chapter 1, Paul writes in verse 15, Unto the pure, all things are pure. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. Now look at verse 16. They, and here's a key word, profess that they know God. Profession, folks, means nothing if there's no life to back it up. I was in India when the moral scandal of one of our presidents came up regarding an intern with whom he had had illicit relations in the Oval Office. Not in XIA, right? <clears throat> Probably all know anything. And the guy, the president, was a Southern Baptist. And about that same time they they, they they were showing the president coming out of church with a big, I mean a big oversight bigger than this under his arms. You know what the reaction of many of the Indian people were? That's Christianity for you. And so all of us got a black eye because of one man's moral sin. And people said that's Christian. No, that's not Christianity. That's humanism. That's carnality at best. That's just wickedness and sin in the life of an unsaved person. So they profess that they know God. But in works, they deny Him. Now look at the next two words. Being abominable. And then disobedient. And unto every good work reprobate. Or the word reprobate literally means void of judgment. But notice the phrase, being abominable. That is not talking about man's actions. That's talking about man's character. It's not talking about what man does. It's talking about what man is. Do you realize, folks, before you and I were saved, we were abominable to Him? And yes, because we were abominable, we were also disobedient, and we were utter total reprobates void of any decent judgment, oh, what a change God makes in our life. Before we were saved, we were, we were detestable to God. And folks, that's where the miracle of divine love comes in. You know, human love is a responsive love. We, we love because of some positive uh, attribute in the object of our love. For example, boy meets girl, a girl meets boy, and his eyes bug out, this is Man, can I ever enjoy spending the rest of my life looking at her without realizing she's not always going to look like that. Or if she could go his wavy hair, I could see us in our retirement years just running my fingers through his waves, but you know, halfway through their marriage, there are no waves left. All that's left is beach. <laughs> or, or a runway flies. The guy was sitting in church and he just had a little bit on the edge here. He was kind of scratching his head and laying up behind him and said, Hey, George, if you scare it out in the open, I'll take a swat at it for you. <laughs> but seriously, folks, we love because of a positive response, either with one or more of the five senses. But understand God's love is not a responsive love. I don't know if there is such a word, but let me point it if there isn't. God's love is an initiatory love. In other words, God loves in spite of the fact that the object of his love is not worthy, but is defiled, dirty, detestable, and depraved. But God loves us anyway. Several years ago I was conducting a meeting in central Pennsylvania and I get up and sang it Sunday morning right before the mess set. I think, why me? This should happen to Pastor Fleming, not me. Pastor Fleming, not me. I didn't really, I didn't really bring you into this, brother, but he got to sing this contemporary rock song. And it was, the, the words, of it, they, they talk about Christian music being boring. There's nothing more boring than contemporary Christian music. It's loud, it's obnoxious, but it's repetitive and boring. And the same seven eleven words, same seven words some eleven times. You know, Jesus loves you just the way you are. Jesus loves you just the way you are. And folks, when I got to preach right after, I could not say, "Thank you, brother." That was a blessing. It was not a blessing. It was a damper on the service. But I could not let the bad doctor. I said, "Folks, listen. We need to understand." and I think you folks maybe do understand this, that God does not love us just the way we are. God loves us in spite of what we are. And there's a world of difference. So God loves us even when we are abominable and disobedient. But that shows me the total depravity Paul, the apostle, said, In my flesh dwelleth no good thing. There's nothing good in any part of you. There's no spark of divinity in any, much less all of us. One of the politicians in D.C., I think it was Nancy Pelosi, spoke of, of we're all God's children. No, we're not. The vast majority of the people of the world are children of the devil, not children of God, Galatians 3.26. And so the reach of sin reaches into all of mankind and all of man's being. Now turn, if you will, please, and again, keep your finger here, put your song in here, whatever, and go to the book of Hebrews chapter 10. And we're not going to be there long, but I do want to highlight a couple of things to you. Hebrews chapter 10, and verses 1 to 3. We've looked at the, the uh, reason for sin, the reality of sin, the result of sin, the reach of sin, I want you to think now briefly about the remembrance of sin. Uh, Hebrews 10 verse 1, For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. Now pause. The sacrifice to which the writer makes reference here is the sacrifice on the day of atonement, an annual sacrifice offered by the priest first for himself and then for the sins of the And he says here that that sacrifice cannot uh, cannot, uh, make everybody perfect. Because verse 2 he goes on to explain. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? does that make sense? If you're made perfect you don't have to make them anymore. Offer them anymore. Because if the worshippers once first should have had no more conscience of sins. But he says in reality in those sacrifices on the day of atonement there is a remembrance again made of sins every day year. Folks, think how discouraging it must have been to be a Jew in the Old Testament. Your sin has never gotten rid of. I mean, they would offer the sacrifices, the sin offering, and all these other offerings, and, and Psalm 32 and elsewhere tells us that the blood of the animals covered their sin, but it did not cleanse their sin. And every year on the Day of Atonement, they are reminded again every year of the presence and the reality of sin. How awful that was. Now that's the Old Testament. But thank God, In the Old Testament, sin was remembered every year. But in the New Testament, sin has been removed by the blood of Christ. Colossians 1.14 In whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. What a wonderful contrast between the Old and the New Testament. Aren't you glad you're not living under the dispensation of the law, but under the dispensation of God's precious grace? By the way, if you jump down to verse 11, notice every priest stand the offering, uh, ministry and offering the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. that sound familiar today? Contrasting that with the high supreme sacrifice of Christ, but this man, the Lord Jesus, after He offered one sacrifice, that's the supreme sacrifice, for sins, that's the substitutionary sacrifice, forever, that's the sufficient sacrifice, and when He did that, He sat down uh, on the right hand of God. Verse 17 and 18, where there are sins and iniquities, will I remember no more, that where remission of these is, there is no... go back to Romans chapter 5. And let me conclude by looking briefly with you at the remedy for sin. Notice verse 8. But God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, or still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, that but God, sometimes we, we take this verse by itself without understanding verse 7. Where Paul says, "Scarcely for a righteous man or a good man will some die; yet peradventure for good men, someone even dare to die." I mean, how many times have we heard about people in the military in Afghanistan and Iraq, soldiers who have thrown themselves on a on a on an explosive device and they lose their life, but they save the lives of their platoon? How many times do we hear about someone who is a quote good Samaritan who takes down somebody else? In order to protect his family or someone else that he may not even know, and even sacrifices his life or puts his life at risk, even for a good person, somebody even there to God. That's the context, but he's saying now. But but when you talk about us and God, God didn't, folks, God didn't love us when we were good. God's grace was not extended to us when we were even righteous in man's eyes, good citizens. Contrasting, but God commended His love to us not when we were good, but in that while we were yet sinners, still actively sinning, still rebelling against God. In that condition, Christ died for us. How thankful I am for that phrase! Only I don't like the plural. I like the, I like the singular. Christ died for me, and He died for you. Is He your personal Savior? 1 Peter 2.24 says, Who bear to his own self, bear our sins, in his own body on the tree. One final reference, and I'll be done. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the great resurrection chapter. And I refer you to one verse, verse 22. Because here's the reason for sin. As in Adam all died, here's the remedy for sin. Even so in Christ shall all die. Now be careful that you don't make that verse say something it does not say. Universally, all men are sinners because of Adam's sin. And sometimes people say, well, because uh, as in Adam we all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive That means that, that teaches universalism that, that one day everybody's going to be saved. Everybody's going to make it after all. Doesn't teach that at all. It is beginning with the fact that we are spiritually dead in Adam. But then the next phrase here, in Christ shall all be alive," means that those who are going to be having spiritual life can only have that spiritual life in and through and because of the person and the finished work of Lord Jesus Christ. Only in Him do we have eternal life. Now when Jesus was hanging on the cross between two thieves, they both raveled Him, they both reviled Him. And later the one guy said, Lord, remember me when thou comest him like kingdom. And Jesus said, that, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And the word thou is in singular. Dr. Schoolfield in the Schofield Bible puts it this way He says, One thief was saved so that none need despair. But only one, so that none may presume. That's good. Don't you dare presume because God saved him, God's not saved you. God will only save you if you come to him as the other person did. By faith, confessing sin, and turning from your sin to the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful text we have here. Um, as by one man sin entered into the world and left by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And then we go on down to verse 17, or verse 16. Um, not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift, for the judgment was by one unto condemnation. But the free gift of be- is of many offenses of the justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they that receive abundance of grace, and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one. And that is Jesus Christ. I compare that with 1 Corinthians 15-22 and you get the total picture there. Salvation, and the grace of God only through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow together as we